0: Welcome to Life on Pause, a podcast defining the experience of being a young adult with cancer.
1: Each episode, we explore issues impacting young adults in
2: and after treatment.
0: Like what you hear? Have something to add?
2: Come join us for next
3: month's recording the third Tuesday at 6 p.m. My name is Ryan Dellinger. I will be hosting for tonight. And just so everybody has an idea of kind of the topic, I wanted to talk about kind of like my experience with fitness and during and after treatment, both during and after chemo and during and after bone marrow transplant. And then also beyond that, like continuing my own personal fitness journey after remission. I wanted to hear a little bit from everybody else. And then after that, I'd like to introduce Dr. Rowan, Dr. Burse, and then Dr. Schmitz to talk about research that coordinates the positive effects of exercising and stuff while uh, undergoing treatment and after treatment. So, and then after that, we can open it up for some questions. As I said earlier, my name is Ryan Dellinger. I'm 19 years old, and I was uh, diagnosed with acute lymphoblastic leukemia in um, June of 2018. And I've been in remission since January of 2019. Fitness for me is really important, especially at this point, it continues to be important for me. I was never like super into sports or like I would never consider myself a super fit person, but I was very active, you know, and I, I would um, participate in um, just outdoor sports for fun, no organized sports. I was fit before treatment or at least somewhat fit. And then treatment, I feel like really kind of brought me down physically. And it was hard for me to initially rationalize my muscle atrophy. It was frustrating. Uh, I felt as if I lost everything I've been gaining my entire life as far as muscle-wise. Treatment was very frustrating, especially because while in treatment, I tried to You know, go for walks on days that I felt good, but just as everybody, I'm sure, can attest to this while you're in treatment, you have some good days and some not so good days. Once I had my bone marrow transplant, that's when I really noticed the extreme deconditioning and muscle atrophy to the point where after my bone marrow transplant, I struggled to stand in the shower for the entire time I was in there in the hospital, they had a uh, chair to shower, so I was primarily using that. But some stuff that was really important to me that helped me stay motivated to um, get out there and regain my muscle and get back into things was my friends and family. For example, when friends would visit me in uh, Philly, which is where I had my bone marrow transplant. They would uh, encourage me to go on a walk with them or, you know, I would say something about going on a walk and they would, you know, gladly come along with me and keep me company. Also, while my parents were staying with me, they're a huge motivator for me as well. Helped kind of like push me to um, get out there and start rebuilding my muscle. And not only that, friends and family served as a major support system being there for me morally and emotionally throughout the entire recovery process. So that right in itself was huge. Although I had some uh, days where I just didn't feel like doing anything, I accepted that and took advantage of the days where I felt better then and um, just tried to put in extra work on those days. Fast forwarding to today, I kind of feel like I'm still continuing my personal fitness journey as I've been going to the gym on a regular basis at least four times a week. Overall, I feel like it not only makes me feel better physically, I'm actually becoming stronger than I was before on my treatment. It also helps me a lot emotionally, just generally speaking. And then also emotionally dealing with some of the kind of like afterthoughts of, treatment and stuff and you know just how some people really struggle with anxiety and depression of the thoughts of the cancer coming back i feel as if there's a major connection between the physical and the emotional and um getting that workout in really helps clear my mind and clear my thoughts and i'm sure as you'll see with some of the uh research that there there is actually a link that's been proven at this time, I'd just like to open it up to anybody else that would be wanting to say a couple words on this specific topic.
4: I always thought I was very fit before I started treatment. I used to powerlift in high school and then I got to college and I was diagnosed when I was a sophomore in nursing school. So I would run a lot. I would go to the gym five days a week. And then when I was diagnosed, I was super tired all the time, but I was really stubborn. So I remember like... During my treatment, I got a gym membership and I told my family I was just going to go and stretch, just keep my muscles like in tune. Um, But I actually went one time and I tried to squat like in the middle of treatment. And I learned really quickly that like that was not a thing at all that you should do because I couldn't walk for a week and my family was super upset with me for doing that to my body because it was already stressed. It just shows that like when you're at such a limit, you just want that that little thing you can do and for a lot of us that's exercise and a lot of us just want the simplicity of being able to go on a walk or going out for a bike ride when we're going through something so drastic to our body we still want to be in control of our physical limitations even though sometimes we aren't so it was really hard giving up the gym and giving up exercise during treatment so i definitely understand that aspect ryan so then post-treatment i'm now um two and a half years in recovery. And I'm actually, I think, more fit than I ever was before because I did a half marathon right before Christmas. And before treatment, I could barely run like more than three miles. So that's my fitness journey through treatment.
0: Being active is something that's very important to I me. Mean, it's been hard to, to dial that back a little bit. I think something that's interesting too is that for me, exercise was something actually that uh, led me to my diagnosis a little bit. I think you know everyone reports a lot of, things like not feeling well and and all that. And you never know like, Oh, you know, is my body just going through something. Am I, am I extra tired? I had a workout routine where I used to go to the gym. And before I would lift, I would, I would just run a mile, run a fast mile, just to break a sweat, get warmed up. And then I would start lifting. And when you add five minutes to your mile time over the course of two weeks, you start to think something might be up. So for me, that was actually the push that I was like, okay, this isn't just a bug or something like that. Like I think something might be wrong. I figured it was mono at the time. But for me, that that physical connection with exercise was interestingly what led me to get checked out. So it's kind of felt like part of the journey the whole way. And I look forward to getting back into it as well.
5: A struggle for me initially was when I was done my first round of treatment very young. So from about eight, just eight and a half years old to probably just under 11, or I guess just over 11. And then relapsing two years later. So I'm starting to get my strength back and starting to do that. And then it comes back and then it was kind of like full speed ahead. How do I recover? And I remember in the hospital, one of the biggest things going through primary transplant was to stay moving. And it wasn't like, you know, anything other than I I needed to stay moving because that was the best outcomes that I had. And I had a stationary bike and we were playing Xbox dance central. And I remember having a putting green in my room and there's just so much going on. And that was like, Ryan said, the constant motivation from everyone. And I would agree with Lexi. Now I'm, I'm beyond stronger than I ever could. I think I go to the gym six times a week, maybe like it's pretty consistent now. and, And, and I think like Ryan said too, it's a mental thing. It's one of those things where you have the opportunity to take control of how you, you know, feel and how you look, and just all those other things. I think that have been very important to me, and and trying to get above a baseline that I ever thought I could have gotten gotten through is is what I think my fit physical fitness journey and just trying to find new things. I think that's one of the biggest things for for me is getting in a routine, but not getting in a routine and trying to you know do other activities that we can throughout everything, um, which is really critical.
1: I definitely resonated with what Ryan said about not being able to shower. I definitely had points where like if I sat down on the ground, I couldn't stand up myself. And I was also anemic for a lot of my treatment, as I'm sure many of you were, which makes just any physical activity really hard when you can only walk like a block without having to like stop and catch your breath. Before I was diagnosed, I was in the best shape I've ever been in. I was taking dance classes and going to the gym a lot. Now, because of the pandemic and I have an immune deficiency, I don't especially feel like it's safe for me to go to the gym. So that's been disappointing because it was something I was really looking forward to kind of like incorporating back into my life. And there's definitely other ways that I found to exercise, but I miss like being able to go to a gym.
6: So probably the thing I guess i most experienced was I was a very naturally stubborn person before. I guess I'd be like, oh no, I can do that. They put alarms on me for a lot of times because I wouldn't listen. And then I learned how to turn off the alarms and I would get in trouble for that. And like, I had a lot of like physical therapy too. And, and one of the exercises was learning how to um, like fall right, I guess, you know, how to like reposition yourself in a better way because I was in a wheelchair for part of it. And I had the shower thing too, where I couldn't stand up to take a shower. So that was particularly difficult.
7: Yeah, I kind of relate to a kind of a mix of what everyone said. Before my treatment, I wasn't really in like the best shape, but in my head, I was like, I'll I'll figure it out later. I'll get around to getting in shape later in my life. Then I got sick and in my head, I knew that, and needed to get better like now i remember probably 2 months into my treatment and i was doing i, I couldn't stand up the shower i needed my dad's help to get from my bed to the bathroom i remember the one day i was like you know what i'm going to try to get some kind of a workout in in my room i tried to do one push up fell down and i was in so much pain i was bawling and my mom came in and that kind of just knock me down a few pegs and for the next couple months I I didn't even try cuz I knew well I thought that it wasn't going to get any better but then obviously it has gotten better and I actually rang the bell in December and since then I've been starting to eat a little better my girlfriend and I have actually started like working out together motivating each other trying to get better together so it's been a process but If this is what it took to get me in shape, then that's what it took to get me in shape.
6: Before my treatment, I was a three-sport athlete. So I played softball and basketball and volleyball. And I really liked hiking and everything. The one symptom I was having was I could not breathe when I was going upstairs. And I'm like, okay, seriously, Like, I've been a year out of high school. Am I this much out of shape? Like, What's going on? Then especially through treatment, I was having a lot of issues. I was still in, like going to college. So I was having issues walking around campus. It was kind of embarrassing because I'd be out of breath, like going to class because I couldn't breathe. I'm also stubborn. So <laughs> I kept pushing through and I kind of ignored my body a little bit, trying to, you know, keep up with my friends and stuff. And now I'm a year of a year in remission almost. So I've been starting to get back into the gym and back. Feeling strong, I guess, that's exciting. It's definitely hard going from one extreme to another.
3: Yeah, if I could just ask Dr. Burth and Dr. Rao to speak a little bit about their own research, connecting fitness to um, cancer recovery and survivorship.
2: Thank you all so much for inviting me. I really appreciate the opportunity. And I'm not a doctor yet, but I will be. (laughs) Next year, um, I'm still a grad student. I'm a fourth year um, doctor of public health grad student at Penn State College of Medicine. So I'll talk a little bit about like my cancer journey and then I'll get into like some of my research. So first, I was born and raised in Dallas, Texas. And so that's where I completed my treatments. And I was diagnosed with breast cancer in 2015. So that's like a few years ago. And I was 25 years old at the time. Very healthy. I didn't have any like major health issues or any other major surgeries before my cancer diagnosis. Before I started my treatment, I actually cut like my hair off to where it was like a low kind of haircut because I knew I was going to like lose it. That was like my way of preparing myself um, mentally and like emotionally for what was going to come. So I went through six rounds of chemotherapy plus targeted immunotherapy every three weeks. And um, I had breast surgery, I had reconstructive surgery, all of that. Um, And then after my surgery, um, I went through multiple rounds of immunotherapy. I think it was like used as basically like a maintenance drug. I did multiple rounds of the immunotherapy after like all of the other treatments and it also helped my hair to grow back. So that was, you know, nice. And then as far as like side effects and symptoms, you all mentioned um, some of the side effects and symptoms. So I can relate to those things. I also experienced fatigue, but I'm like, I've always been like tired, like even before the cancer diagnosis. So I don't know. The question is, did it get worse over time? So I would say somewhat also had anemia. So when I was exercising, I could really feel the effects of that. And to where I was like, almost like I felt like I was going to pass out. I only like vomited once, like during my treatment. So there wasn't, I wasn't like vomiting, you know, very often. It was just that one time. Hair loss. So I still lost all of my hair, even though I cut my hair at the beginning. And I also had like muscle spasms, but no major like side effects or symptoms or anything like that. Before and during, after my cancer treatments, I did and continue to engage in physical activity. And so while going through my treatment, I actually was a personal trainer at a local gym. This was in Dallas, Texas. So I had several clients And, you know, I was helping them to achieve their fitness goals while they were helping me to stay positive and get through the treatment. So that was kind of nice. As far as physical activity goes, it has played a major role just like in my life and health. Um, I was a track and field athlete and I had been running track since I was like seven years old. And so I think that my active lifestyle kept me healthy over the years, which is why I don't think I had any other like major health problems. And physical activity just in general has just so many benefits. I think it helped to improve my survival. It helped me to manage, you know, the cancer, manage my side effects and symptoms from the treatments, manage my weight, um, also improve my mental and physical well-being, improve my mood, reduce my stress levels. I mean, the list just goes on. So um, I also think that physical activity helped me to tolerate the treatments better because I never had to miss a treatment or skip a treatment. Um, I received the full dose of each of the treatments. So now I want to talk about like my research. So based on my personal experiences, I know that like being active contributed to not only my survival, but my quality of life. And so there are different definitions for like quality of life, if you think about it. So it's the degree to which we believe or you believe that you're healthy, you're comfortable and you're able to enjoy life. And so quality of life and survivorship is and. The cancer survivor population is increasing. So it's important to study quality of life and survivorship, just like we study other cancer outcomes like mortality, and survival, to really have like a complete understanding of the full picture and have a complete understanding of the various issues that are experienced by cancer survivors. So thinking about like how cancer and cancer treatments impacts quality of life, what are the needs and concerns of like cancer survivors? And then how do we address quality of life among cancer survivors? And I think one way to address quality of life among cancer survivors is through engaging in regular physical activity. So this has led to like my research that I'm doing today. I'll end with this quote by Alexis, um, I think the last name is Carol. And the quote states that quality of life is more important than life itself.
3: At this time, if I could just hand it off to uh, Dr. Rao. say a few words?
1: Hi, everyone. I think I know most of the faces here, but my name is Pooja Rao. I'm one of the pediatric oncologists here at Penn State and the director of our Penn State Adolescent Young Adult Oncology Program. I just wanted to say thank you so much for the opportunity for us to speak again at the meeting today. So I'm going to leave some of the details of the study of mine that is open to Jared who's the um, exercise interventionist extraordinaire for our study AYA Unite which is i can finally say finally up and running so that's super exciting just a few words just about physical activity so i will say i'm so in awe of people's exercise journeys i will say i was probably Good. the most non athletic person growing up you know i i was the kid whose parents forced them to do cross country just to to get them into a sport. And I feel like for me, my interest into physical activity actually came when I started doing research in this area. So you'll hear a little bit more from Dr. Schmitz shortly, but she was actually one of my professors when I was getting a master's degree during my fellowship training in Philly. Her work is fabulous. And you'll hear more about that later. But I kind of through a serendipitous course, ended up meeting Dr. Schmitz again here at Penn State. And we thought a collaboration with each of our areas of interest would be beneficial. And I think it has been so I think I was trying to practice what I was preaching at that point in time, you know, about the benefits of physical activity. And I definitely echo everyone else's statements. I think the physical benefits, I think are wonderful with physical activity. But what is the most appealing to me is the emotional benefits that you get. And kind of tied into the research that Jared will talk about the ability for physical activity to cause or create social bonds between people. I think one area that I've noticed a lot in taking care of a lot of young adults is that a lot of young adults get very isolated because of their treatment and I think that's even more pronounced in the pandemic that we have. So the onus is really on us as oncologists to find ways to not just give patients their chemotherapy, do our exams, but find ways to improve their psychosocial health. So those aspects of health that are beyond physical, like their social health, emotional health, mental health. And I think physical activity for me is a really fabulous medium to improve the overall psychosocial well-being of our AYA patients. So without further ado, um, I'd like Jared to talk a little bit about himself and about the study we're running together.
8: Hi everyone. My name is Jared Heisenreiter. I'm an exercise physiologist and cancer exercise trainer. And that's basically a fancy term for scientific personal trainer. So I go a step beyond and understanding chronic disease and how where exercise can impact the body and be used as medicine to kind of counteract some of the negative effects of disease and treatment. So I'm going to talk a little bit on behalf of Dr. Rao and the AYA Unite study. So it's adolescents and young adults utilizing novel information technology to promote exercise and well-being. So that's a big acronym to kind of break down. It's a physical activity program with a social component, and it is novel because we are using a Zoom platform, which kind of addresses some of the major problems that we are now faced with, talking about the lack of physical activity and lack of social interaction. I know personally, and I know many people, and as a lot of you talked about, you don't feel comfortable going to the gym. And so we, now we have to exercise at home sometimes. This is an innovative way to approach that. And the Zoom platform allows us to do that while also having everyone's tile on the screen. You can see everyone's face and we can have something similar to what this seems to be where we're interacting with one another, being social with each other, and we can do that twice a week while getting physical activity. This is research, so there, and it is a new approach. And so, when you're taking a look at a new approach, you have to kind of determine the safety, feasibility, and the acceptability of something. So, does it add any additional risk? Are people who are approached into the, the study as described them? Are they signing up? And those who do sign up, are they continuing to participate throughout? So, those are kind of some big primary endpoints we're looking at. But then you have the physical and social components that are kind of also big points in this study. Before we do the intervention, we do some physical function assessments. And a lot of these are kind of related to activities of daily living. A lot of the things that you said, such as showering or getting around the house, getting out of chairs. We have specific physical function measures that kind of look at those movements and stuff like that. And we also have some questionnaires that deal with some of the social isolation and distress components. So we do that before and after the intervention, which is the Zoom-based exercise program. So that's unique because I think somebody said that they were doing Dance Dance Revolution or something like that on Xbox. And I know I had done that before too. This is kind of uh, similar in a way because we're using hip-hop public health videos. They're pre-recorded videos with this company created very fun music and choreographed aerobic fitness classes to go along with that. So that's kind of our aerobic component. We also have a resistance training program. We have a set of each of these with a bunch of different resistance. So it goes from five to 10 pounds all the way up to 10 to 30 or 25 to 30. And so we can do a full body routine covering all the major muscle groups to make sure that we're addressing any imbalances or issues that might be present while also kind of taking a full body approach to overall strength, wellness, endurance, and health. AYA Unite is looking to recruit 15 to 21-year-olds. And we are currently recruiting people who are undergoing active treatment or within one year of finishing treatment. Um, And we're not currently recruiting anyone who has had a history of relapsed cancer or who has had a transplant. And as Dr. Rao said, we are officially up and going. We recruited our first cohort of people. We have four individuals who have signed up They were sent their materials, which is a participant binder that has some relevant information to the study, um, some important Q&A stuff that would be common questions from participants, as well as a resistance band set. We've begun the initial assessments. I actually just completed the first assessment today where we did some of the physical function stuff and we sent out the questionnaires. Those will continue throughout the week and hopefully we'll be getting started with the intervention very soon. Um, I'm looking forward to it.
3: I would like to uh, pass it off to Dr. Schmitz to say some stuff about her research.
9: Thanks, Ryan. So first, really, really nice to be with you guys this evening. I need to address a few things first before I talk about my research. One is Jared has promised me as like the biggest dork on this call that he will dance along with the hip hop for public health nobody needs to be afraid of looking like the biggest dork on the call because it's going to be Jerry. Yes. (laughs) I also just need to say just how incredibly proud of Natasha Burse I am. She didn't tell you the part that's sort of cool to me. And that is, she actually came to Penn State to work on something else, discovered that she was diagnosed with breast cancer and left, took care of that, came back and said, oh, I've decided I want to work on physical activity and breast cancer. And her advisor said, that's nice. I don't do that. (laughs) And so she kind of went looking and found me and changed programs, moved campuses, and we started working together. You should also know, and this is, I think, just, I'm so proud of her. She's NIH funded, which is really, really an extremely rigorous and difficult thing. To do. She wrote a grant in my grant writing class and submitted it and got it <laughs> for the research that she's doing on physical activity and quality of life in breast cancer survivors. So dream big. <laughs> so proud of Natasha. And Pusha Rao, my God, somebody like, you know, I taught her at Penn and I get to Penn State and somebody says, Pusha Rao's here. And I'm like, what? what? So she came in my office and we're like, "Ah!" old home week. So I feel like I should start with like what my exercise story is because we did that. And it's, and my exercise story is kind of fun. So uh, I was a dancer and that was my, my first career was as a professional dancer in New York city. I danced with the Martha Graham dance company in New York City. And after that, I I became a fitness trainer. Having been a dancer, I was a different kind of fitness trainer. Most fitness trainers have been like track athletes or, you know, they like to run. I hate running. (laughs) I've never been a good runner. So I've gravitated more towards weight training in my personal, you know, fitness journey. I got really interested in the potential for weight training to be useful for a lot of physiologic benefits in my research. And I've always been the kind of researcher that I always wanted to walk the walk with my, with my participants. And so the first randomized trial that I did was a weight training intervention. And so I did the protocol that I asked the patients to do the whole time the trial was going. I actually just kept doing that with all of my studies. So let me talk to you a little bit about. A study that we have funded through the Four Diamonds Fund, and I I wrote this grant specifically so that Maxine Caru could come and run this study. This study is called Papaya. We love our acronyms. We love our acronyms in our studies. So the first Papaya study is called Papaya Qualitative, and what we're doing is we're actually looking at patients younger than you guys, 10 to 17, who are anywhere one to 10 years out. From the end of their treatment. We're interested in understanding how the quality of a conversation between the oncologist and the patient about physical activity matters in advising for physical activity. You know, if your doctor does a better job of talking to you about physical activity, does that make a difference? Are you more likely to actually become more physically active? But then the papaya randomized controlled trial. We will be recruiting patients 10 to 17 who are at least one to 10 years out from treatment into a randomized controlled trial. We're going to be providing Fitbits. We're going to be providing behavioral theory-based counseling. And we're trying to get these patients from whatever level of physical activity they do to 300 minutes a week of aerobic exercise, which is the recommendation for that age range.
10: Thank you so much for having me tonight. It's such an honor to listen to your story. It's really amazing. My name is Maxime Caroux. I was a professional athlete when I was an adolescent. I was in the French cycling team. And finally, I stopped this because I was involved in a car accident. So I had a pulmonary embolism. So finally, I put all of my effort and time into my academic process. So I joined the university and I received my bachelor's degree in exercise physiology in 2014. After this, I moved to Canada in order to complete my master's degree in adapted physical activity and health in 2016 and uh, also complete Two PhD, one in exercise physiology and another in psychology in 2020. Yes, it was very recent. And over the course of my PhDs, I studied the effect of exercise in childhood acute lymphoblastic leukemia survivors. And I also participated in the development and implementation of a physical activity program in pediatric oncology. I'm very, very interested about the promotion of physical activity during treatment and also doing for the survivors. Because when I had my primary embolism, all of the physician asked me to stop doing sports. It was a big mistake, but I wasn't sure because I wasn't in research and my knowledge about exercise and cardiac rehabilitation, for example, was not very good at this point. So because of my research, I understood that was very, very important for the patient in cardiac rehabilitation or with a cancer or another disease. During my PhDs, I was very interested about exercise, physical activity, and their association with physiological parameters, epidemiological genetics, cardiac electrophysiology, and psychology. Following my PhDs, I developed my expertise and knowledge in cardio-oncology in order to study the effects of cancer treatments in childhood cancer survivors. At this point, I have about seven years of cardiac rehabilitation experience and five years of exercise and oncology experience. I joined the one group and the Dr. Schmidt's lab three weeks ago after a very, very long process <laughs> to continue my research in exercise and oncology in adolescent and young adults with cancer and also with survival. So thank you so much for having me. And to be honest, you are very, very amazing.
3: Thank you so much, Maxime. And thank you so much, Dr. Schmitz for sharing that information. At this time, I would I would like to open it up to uh, all the young adults. Is there any questions from anybody?
6: I was just wondering what would be um, like a safe exercise to do that you're not going to overexert yourself. Or is one thing that I was kind of worried about with exercising because of you know how tired I was at the end of the day, and you know I was already just completely just tired after even walking class to class on campus, like what would be a safe exercise you could do where you're not going to worry about overexertion or possibly even causing more harm? Because I know chemo can cause harm to your heart or tissues or lungs and stuff like that.
9: One of the things that we figured out over time with the ENACT trial, uh, and this is you know in patients during chemotherapy, is if you are not sure whether or not you're feeling well enough to do your exercise or you're up for it, to do 10 minutes. And after 10 minutes, if you are feeling worse, if you're feeling more fatigue and you're feeling worse, stop. Take a break for the rest of the day. Try it again another day. But if after 10 minutes you're okay, then keep going. We use the 10 minute rule. And I have been kind of surprised how many conversations I've had With exercise oncology professionals around the country who have used this ten minute rule or something close to it and found it to work.
0: Thanks. I I was hoping to bounce off that a little bit. And Dr. Schmidt, it's one of the things that stick with you. What I remember from the last time we spoke was, uh, I think your quote was, "If you're feeling fatigued, go for a walk." I I promise it might go against common sense, but it will make you feel better. So that's certainly been something that's uh, rang true for me the past couple months because. Oftentimes it's the only exercise you, you can get. But similar to Allison's question, I think last time we had discussed, you know, there were concerns about the safety of heart health and weightlifting and potential concerns with that. And from what I remember, there was, there was some research on that, but not a lot. But if you could refresh my memory as to kind of what the guidance is with that. Sure.
9: Yeah. There is actually zero evidence that doing weight training appropriately is risky for individuals at elevated risk for heart issues after cancer what i mean by doing it appropriately is that the slope of increase in your resistance should be reasonable so what i mean by that is that if you're doing your exercises with 5 and 10 pound weights and you're finding that to be you know enough work you don't suddenly decide you're going to do 25 and 50 pounds the next day, that the slope of increase, you should be going from five to 10 pounds with your weights. Then you're doing 12 and 15. And then, you know, you're gradually sloping up with that kind of slow, slow and slow increase. You should be fine keeping the weights a little bit lighter. If you're working out at home, which is pretty much what we're doing right now. The other thing that I would say that, you know, somebody asked a question earlier and I wanted to say, God, what I really want to tell you to do is weight training. Because I think that you guys are at risk for low lean mass, low muscle mass because of the treatments that you've been through. And as a result, that makes you feel like everything, like just picking yourself up is harder because you don't have as much muscle. And so I have this suspicion and I'm sort of curious, like, if I could get Maxime interested in this, I, I sort of feel like weight training could be, it's my joke, but could be kind of a gateway drug for more physical activity. You know, the idea being if you become stronger, then it becomes easier to do everything else. And if you are someone who has had a hit to your strength, a hit to your muscle mass, because you've been through a long stretch of time where you were not able to be physically active, at a time when your body was developing, then, you know, you're behind on muscle mass. You're behind. So it feels to me like strength training, Casey, is is a no-brainer in the AYA population. The other thing I like about weight training is that you can do it twice a week and see major progress with just two half-hour sessions a week. So Allison, if you don't feel like working out every day, but you want to feel successful in your workouts, do 30 minutes of weight training twice a week, boom, done.
1: And to kind of go off of that idea, a great point that got made to me after the last podcast that we had about physical activity is, is that sometimes I feel like patients hear different things from their oncologists, myself included, And someone who's like trained in exercise science about what's safe and what's not, someone had raised this question the last session about how their oncologist may say one thing and someone else may say another. And and the last thing anyone wants is for the patient to be kind of trying to figure out what's the right answer. So if there's ever questions that come up, you know, with your healthcare providers or oncologists that may be different, say, than something that Dr. Schmidt says, who's like basically dedicated her life to this field. That's always helpful for oncologists to know about. And I would encourage your oncologist either to reach out to me so I can put them in touch with Dr. Schmidt or find a way to kind of promote that dialogue. Because I would hate for anyone to feel like, well, I don't know what the right answer is. So I'm not going to do anything. You know, that's like, I I don't think anyone's goal. And I'm seeing this as an oncologist, physical activity do's and don'ts are not a part of our training. I've learned more from Dr. Schmidt since I've been here at Penn State doing my research than I did in all of my oncology training. So sometimes the default answer that oncologists give is to just, well, the safest thing would not be to even try to endeavor to do anything. And it's coming from a good place, but maybe that's, not the best answer and it could be explored more.
9: If you have a question, if you're getting crossed wires, you can email the one group and we have consultation hours every week from Jared and Beth Kansky, who's the other exercise trainer with the group. Don't use it as an excuse not to exercise.
0: I've seen so many transitions throughout the pandemic, I'm curious kind of what the future of gyms and exercise classes look like.
9: Okay. So the first thing to tell you is that the nation is anywhere between 15 and 27% less active as a result of the pandemic, depending on the study. There actually is, of course, you know, all those Fitbits that people wear all that, you know, my Apple watch, you know, all of those things are collecting data. And so you can collect the identified data and you can look. What did it look like a year ago? What does it look like now? So. Doing that kind of analysis, what we find is, you know, again, depending on the data set that you're looking at, anywhere between 15 and 27% less active. So we really are less active. And unfortunately, we're not eating any less. I don't know about you, but really enjoying elastic waist pants these days. Uh, Despite the working out six days a week, you know, there is great news about if you've been vaccinated, then you're better able to find yourself in less quarantine conditions, but the ID docs that I have been listening to are talking up a, a whole lot in ways that are much more complicated than I understand, about the number of genetic variants that have, have developed of COVID, and the fact that that occurred in part because we weren’t masking and because the cases, you know, went up so high, so fast. So we're dealing with a different scenario than we might have been dealing with had the nation really masked up and quarantined a year ago. So I think that all of the predictions that everybody has are exactly that,
0: Casey. That's helpful. I was just curious uh, just to see if there were ideas as to how that would how that would continue to develop, but it seems like I...
5: at-home workouts are here to stay for a bit.
3: Thank you for sharing that. That's pretty incredible stuff.
5: As far as the study with Children and are children going through cancer. How do you plan on educating the parents? Like, what's the barriers, I guess, associated with that? You're looking at a 10 to 17 year old age, and the majority of them, I would say, are not self independent.
8: The education of the parent process is going to take place before the individual would sign up for the study. So, um, any questions that they had about safety or goals or participation, that would all be answered beforehand. We give an opportunity to describe all aspects um, that would take place, whether that's the physical activity, the social part, the Zoom-based portion, or even the questionnaires. We present all of that up front and then we give them time to ask questions, get all of those answered and even, you know, discuss as a family if they think this is what's best for them and if it's something they're interested in. And then at that point we would
1: pursue with the intervention. Well, a huge thank you to Ryan. I really didn't know how you were going to do it. I thought it was very ambitious and you just guided us through really lovely. Thank you so much, Ryan. And thank you all to everybody that came.
0: Thanks for listening to Life on Pause.
2: Ideas or suggestions for future episodes? Feel free to share them with us. Join us for the next recording on the third Tuesday of the month. Until Until next next time. time.